0: Today on Something You Should Know, what's the first thing you should not do when you get a fever? Then understanding the science of hunger and how to use it to control what you eat.
1: There isn't a single hunger, you have specific appetites. And if you just think about it, rather than conceiving yourself as being hungry as if it was a single thing, it's quite extraordinary to watch these appetites working in the natural world.
0: Also, why you probably really need to clean your car steering wheel and dashboard. And understanding what does and does not make a romantic relationship work.
2: One of the things that we see is that you know when people, you know, fall in love, they decide, well, I'm in love, and so this must mean this is the right relationship for me, and, and love is gonna make it work. And it doesn't necessarily make it work.
0: All this today on something you should know. Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, something you should know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. And we begin this episode of Something You Should Know with a health question. Say you have a fever. What do you do, or what should you do? In a survey of men, 44% said they would take an over-the-counter fever reducer. And 6% of the men said that they would apply a cool compress to try to bring the fever down. The other 50% said that they would let it run its course. So who did the right thing? Well, according to experts, and this was published in Men's Health, a fever is a good thing most of the time, and you should let it run its course. An increase of just 1 to 2 degrees in your body temperature boosts the productivity in your immune cells and helps them fight off infection, which is exactly what you want to have happen. So, the general advice is not to interfere with your fever. The exception is you should seek medical help if your fever hits 103 degrees Fahrenheit or higher or is persistent, lasting longer than 3 days. And that is something you should know. When you look at animals in the wild, you almost never see overweight animals. Animals generally don't overeat and gain too much weight. They eat enough, just enough. Humans, the supposed smartest species on the planet, can't seem to do that as elegantly and consistently as the animals. Why? Well, maybe there's a lesson there in what the animals are doing. And here to explain exactly what that lesson is, is Stephen Simpson. He is academic director of the Charles Perkins Centre and professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney in Australia. He's also author of the book, Eat Like the Animals. Hi Stephen, welcome. Hi Mike, it's a
1: great pleasure to be here.
0: So what is the message here? It, It does seem that animals generally don't struggle with weight, but... But it also seems that finding food is a whole lot harder for animals, so what is it we can learn here? It's the
1: idea that if we were able to do as all animals on the planet do, tap into our fundamental exquisitely evolved appetite systems, and put them in the right food environments, then we, like every other animal on the planet, wouldn't have a problem with obesity and all of the other terrible diseases that are facing the world associated with diet today in the modern environment. And so
0: what happened? What went wrong? Why are we having such a problem with this? Because people didn't used to have the obesity problem that we have now. We didn't have a lot of the other problems associated with food. So what happened?
1: We've totally lost our way when it comes to our food environment. And and I think that's the key point. It's not that we've lost the ability to eat healthily, to eat an appropriate mix of nutrients, a balanced diet. Rather, we've taken the appetite systems that have evolved to allow us to do that and put them in entirely the wrong food environment. And that's particularly the case since the the ultra processing of foods that's occurred, particularly over the last 50 or 60 years. And that's involved us creating a food environment, which isn't even comprised of proper foods. It's deconstructed, manufactured foods that really subvert and, if you like, hack our basic biology of appetite.
0: So, for example, explain explain with like real examples what you're talking about.
1: Well, there's a a beautiful example, and actually the example we think has driven um, and has rather been overlooked in driving the obesity epidemic over the last 50 years. And that is that if you, as we've done, explore a range of different species in the animal environment, in in, in the, the natural world, you find that all of them, whether you're a slime mold or a cockroach or a baboon, or a human being have a separate appetite for protein. So we don't have a single hunger, we have appetites for different nutrients, protein, carbohydrate, fat, and two of the mineral nutrients, um, salt and calcium. And the appetite for protein turns out to be very powerful. And what that means is that your body is trying to get you to eat the optimal amount of protein every day, and it's sending signals to you to do that. And amongst those signals is to increase the likelihood that you're going to choose something that tastes savory. So savory flavors, those so-called umami flavors. Are associated with protein in natural foods, and when you need protein, you feel like eating those foods. You get a craving for them. Now, in the modern processed food environment, the nearest sort of uh, the nearest source of foods that have those sorts of flavour characteristics are likely things like um, potato chips with barbecue flavour. Um, so they taste like protein, they give you that sort of hit of umami, but all you're d- delivering to your system is a pile of um, unnecessary carbohydrates and fats. Your protein appetite remains unsatisfied and you keep eating. So you're eating until you get your protein target and in so doing, you're overconsuming other calories in your environment that you don't need. And that is the cause ultimately of the rise in obesity. So there's one example. Well, well, that sounds pretty significant. You're, so you're saying that, you know, when
0: we're hungry for protein and we eat something else, we're going to tend to overeat it because we're not getting it satisfied because it isn't protein. Uh, th- that's a
1: big deal. Turns out, actually, we think to be one of the fundamental um, discoveries in the understanding of why the world has got so large over the last 50 or 60 years, and it, it, it turned on its head, and it really, if you think about it, it turns completely on its head, the conventional um, explanation that we overeat fats and carbs, um, and that's what's driven the um, obesity epidemic. Well, in one sense, yes, that's true. We've eaten more calories in, that, in the form of highly processed fats and carbs. Our protein intake has hardly changed. The source of protein, we eat more meat rather than vegetable proteins as a population, that has changed. But the absolute intake of protein at a population level across the world has remained remarkably stable. So it hasn't contributed protein calories to the obesity epidemic. But what we showed was that because we're regulating our intake of protein so precisely, our bodies do that that drives us to eat more fats and carbs in environments where fats and carbs are super abundant. And that's that's where we find ourselves now.
0: Well, here's what's so interesting to me about this, is that you can tell people what you just said. You can tell people that you are trying to satisfy your protein hunger by eating fats and carbs, and you're overeating those things, trying to get enough protein. And people can understand that intellectually, but the behavior isn't going to change. People
1: do what people do. Yes, and that's in part because I think there's two reasons for that. One is that we don't have the deep understanding of what's going on. It's it's hugely empowering if you know, hang on, I have this capacity, I'm not helpless, um, like every other animal on the planet, I've got this beautifully designed appetite system. It's still there, it isn't, it isn't lost, but it's being hacked. I'm being manipulated um, for the commercial benefit of uh, the food industry, not for my own um, health. So, so that's, a, that's a pretty empowering piece of understanding. The, the idea that if you think about it, and you listen to your own, um, quite literally, listen to your appetites. You can tell when you need protein. You can tell when you need fats or carbs. So that that's an empowering thing. the The other thing is is that we're we're really at the mercy of um, the the super stimuli that are provided by uh, the ultra processed foods in our environment. So you take the fabulous example of if you mix. Um, sugar and fat in pretty well equal proportions and then you add let's say you add amyl acetate which is a a Compound you'd find in nail polish remover, but happens to be the signature chemical you find in um, in banana You mix that and chill it down and churn it and you've got industrially produced banana ice cream has no nutritional value whatsoever, but it tastes fantastic because it hits what's called the bliss point point. The point of mixture of fats and carbs and a little bit of salt, which evokes the most fantastic dopamine rush in your brain. So, we've designed as a society foods that stimulate us to find them supernormally palatable and, and wonderful. And, and that's virtually impossible to resist. The only way you can resist it is by putting your appetite systems back in a whole food healthy environment and be aware that these foods are designed to subvert you to to hack you why do you think it
0: is so difficult what is goes on in the human mind that makes it so hard to create that environment at home you know the there's the always the uh, advice that you know if you don't want to eat junk don't bring it into the house but people right. still bring it into the house. Why is it that we can't not bring it into the
1: house? That's such an important question. There's, there's extremely aggressive marketing of these products. You walk into a supermarket nowadays and instead of there being 300 things, there are 30,000 things all brightly coloured, all fabulously flavoured, and all essentially the same. And it, it's just taken us now to a system where, if you, if you look in the US, as we did a little while ago, there's a, a big chunk of the population of the US who are consuming um, 80 or 90% of their calories in the form of these so-called ultra-processed foods. That's an extraordinary number. The average for the population in the US, as it is in the UK and here in Australia, is more than 50%. So 50% of our calories are coming in these manufactured foods where all of the cues that our biology has come to expect have been broken and 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 dislocated. So There's no fiber to give us the break on appetite. There's unnatural flavor combinations that make them taste extraordinary. There are uh, diminished uh, levels of mineral nutrients and protein which drive through our protein appetites over consumption. And I think telling that story, which um, is what I guess our 30 years of research has done, is a really important part of this because one of the reasons we find it so difficult to engage properly with our food environment and are therefore prey to to finding it so um, easy and convenient to eat this um, junk food is that we've just become terribly confused. Well, I think you're right there. I mean, there is
0: a lot of confusion when it comes to what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat and when we should eat it. I'm speaking with Steven Simpson, and he is author of the book, Eat Like the Animals. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So Stephen, given all that you've said about the way people should eat, like the animals, in a very practical way, do, by doing
1: what? what? What should we start doing? So the very first thing is to take heart. It's, it's a good news story that we have these appetite systems. Learn about what they are. There There isn't a single hunger. You have specific appetites for these five different nutrients. Learn to listen to them and start List, trying to listen to them because they're there and they're trying to tell you things, but they're, um, it's it's really difficult to, to know what to listen for until you attend to them. So understanding that is really fundamental. The second thing is to take charge of your food environment. Don't try and fight the junk food industries because you'll never win. They've designed, uh, we, humanity, has designed these foods so that they're unable to be resisted. Um, so the only way to resist them is to keep them out of your food environment. So let your brain ensure that your pantry and, and refrigerator are stocked with good, wholesome foods. Then let your appetites do the rest. You don't you don't need to count calories. You don't need diet books. If you surround yourself with whole foods, um, avoid snacking between meals. Try not to eat um, overnight. So. Don't wake up in the middle of the the night and confuse your biology by eating then. Um, in that way, in those sorts of ways, you're going to expose this extraordinary appetite system that we, we have and we share with every other species on the planet to a food environment in which they're able to work their magic. They actually know what it means because that's the environment in which they were designed. And so you talked about these
0: five appetites different appetites that we all have and and you said that we have this protein appetite and what we often do is grab the b- barbecue flavored potato chip so what should we do instead what 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 what's the, that that's what we're not supposed to do but what's the advice on what to do
1: well in in that case if you if you have a protein appetite if you're feeling like you need to eat something with those savory qualities then reach for high-quality whole food protein um, foods. Now, if you're a, a vegetarian, you can achieve that through eating nuts and, and lentils and pulses and beans. Um, if you're uh, an omnivore or a carnivore, you—someone uh, like me who will eat fish and meat—then you choose good quality fish, meat, poultry, whatever. Their sources, eggs, dairy, they all contain high quality protein.
0: So how is it, I don't really have a sense of these different appetites. Like when I get hungry, I think of myself as hungry and I'll go find something to eat. I don't know what it feels like to have a protein hunger versus a carb hunger versus something else. So can you help me get a better feel
1: for that? Every time you start to think I'm feeling hungry, ask yourself the question, do I feel hungry for something that tastes savoury? So, you know, a steak or, or an, an omelette or, or a packet of barbecue chips, That's, that is an, an example of something that would have those characteristics. Or am I feeling like something a bit more starchy or a bit sweeter or something a bit that has a bit of mouth feel that would be associated with fat um, or am I craving something salty? That's, that's a very powerful specific appetite that we have um, for sodium. And, and if you just think about it, rather than, rather than um, conceiving yourself as being hungry as if it was a single thing, but rather think, well, what sort of hungry am I? then you'll start to see these things. And in operation, they, they, it's just quite extraordinary to watch these appetites actually working in the natural world. Um, so for example, um, David Robenheimer, who's who's my co-author on this book, has done the most extraordinarily beautiful work in um, following primates in the wild. And for example, he and colleagues followed a single chakma baboon in South Africa. And she, over a period of 30 days, they recorded everything that she ate. Um, she ate more than 90 different foods, and it looked like a complete random selection. She was wandering around um, the 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 environment, just eating anything that came to hand. But when you analysed it, she was tracking like a nutrient seeking missile, a precise ratio of protein to fats and carbs. And she was choosing those foods unknowingly. She doesn't have a diet book or a dietetics degree or a, or a computer or an app. She, she's doing this as a result of these appetites working together in their environments to guide her to a healthy diet. Um, we are in a world where we've confused those appetites and we need to start really going back to listening to them. And so that's the first thing. Knowing they're there, so from this conversation, Mike, you can can go back and and really ask yourself the question every time you feel hungry, what do I feel hungry for? There's something important being told to you there.
0: And so once again, very quickly, the five hungers are what
1: protein carbohydrate and fat so they're the three so-called macronutrients Um, and sodium or salt and calcium is the other one and do they all show up the same at the same
0: level or do we feel one more than the other I'm thinking maybe the protein is
1: the one we feel most often protein is the is the strongest of the five appetites and if if you force your appetites to have to compete, it will win. If you allow them to work together, they'll all work together to guide you to, a, to an optimal diet. Well, I think we've all heard before about the importance of, of
0: the environment, the food environment in your home, the old saying of, you know, if you don't want to eat junk, don't bring it into your house, and then you can't eat it because it's
1: not in your house. And and this really seems to speak to that. Now, as you said, that that ain't as easy as it sounds in the modern world. But putting yourself in the right food environment is something over which you really do have control. It's much harder to fight your biology than it is to work with it. Well, it's a really different
0: and unique and empowering way to look at food and how we eat it. And, and you've got the science to back it all up. Stephen Simpson has been my guest. He is a professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney in Australia, and his book is called Eat Like the Animals, and you will
1: find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Stephen. Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed the chat very much. Thank you. I imagine everyone who
0: goes into a relationship or a marriage goes into it with the best of intentions, a hope of good things to come, a blissful, compatible partnership. And yet, it often doesn't work out that way. Things go wrong, people drift apart, relationships sour. So how do you prevent that? And, and how do you fix it if it happens? Well, here with some insightful advice is Joanne Davila, She's been studying and speaking about romantic relationships for some time. She's a professor at Stony Brook University and author of a book called The Thinking Girl's Guide to the Right Guy. And she has a great TED Talk on the skills for healthy romantic relationships. Hi, Joanne. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
2: Thank you. It's so nice to be here.
0: So I think there are people who are in relationships and, uh, and other people who have gotten out of relationships who look at those people who have been in relationships for a long time and they still look so happy and lovey-dovey. And they look upon those people with envy, like how do they do it? Why does it seem so easy for them?
2: One thing is that people often look at others and think that so much is better with them, but that may not always be the case. It's easy for us to just look at others and say, oh, that looks so terrific, why can't I have it? That said, we do need to examine what we're doing in our relationship to um, see if we're really being skillful and to actually make sure we've picked the right person.
0: Well, how do you pick the right person? How do you know if you've picked the right person What's the process for finding the right person, and and is there one right person, do you think?
2: That's a great question. There's one interesting study that was done that looked at newlywed couples, and they asked them right when they had gotten married if they had any reservations about uh, their partner and about going forward with it. And then they followed these couples over time, And it turns out that the couples or the partners who said they had reservations at the time were the ones who were least happy and most likely to get divorced eventually. So studies like that really tell us that we need to pay attention to our intuition early on before we really make a commitment if we're not exactly sure.
0: And yet, how often have we heard the advice, you're being too picky, you're, you 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 you're waiting for the perfect person to come along and they're never going to come along. You need to find someone and settle down and 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 that flies in the face of what you just said.
2: Yeah, that's totally true. and people are always saying those kinds of things. and I, I think they are two different problems, you know, and I think in in today's world, particularly where we have access to online dating and these kinds of things, there are some data that suggests that, people have this sense of, oh, there could be something better. Let me just keep looking and keep looking. So that's one problem. But the other problem is that sometimes people get in a relationship and then they just stay in it no matter what. Um, one of the things that we see is that you know, when people you know, fall in love, they decide, well, I'm in love, and so this must mean this is the right relationship for me, and, and love is going to make it work, and it doesn't necessarily make it work.
0: Well, it's always interested me that there seems to be like a flaw in the process. The the things that attract us to people often have nothing to do with whether or not they would make a good long-term partner. You know, you hear that women who are attracted to bad boys are men who will overlook a lot because they're attracted to a woman's looks. And... These things don't have anything to do or very little to do with whether or not they would be a good partner for a long time.
2: Exactly. People often pay attention to the more um, superficial or surface level things in the attraction phase. You know, what is... uh, what does the person look like, what kind of job do they have, Um, you know, things like that. You know, you ask people, what do you want in a relationship? And those are the kinds of things they'll tell you, oh, I want somebody who's this height or who looks this way or, you know, has this kind of job. And not that those things aren't important. Obviously, we need to be with people that we're attracted to and that, you know, fit those kinds of criteria. But what we, we really need to be looking for are the more underlying qualities that are going to be able to tell us whether someone's actually going to meet our needs and treat us with respect and allow us to feel safe in a relationship and, um, you know, be able to support us when we need and, you know, those kinds of things that um, lead to a more long-term sustainable relationship.
0: In the case of being in a relationship that that you want it to go well or you want it to get better or maybe it's kind of gotten less than good out of neglect where do you even start where do you where, where, where's the starting point to fix something like that
2: Well one important thing is that people really need to pay attention to their relationship before it gets to that point this is a lot of what we see in couples therapy. By the time people come to couples therapy, things are so bad that they, you know, they hate each other, they're blaming each other, Not they're not sure they want to be in the relationship, and so now they're at a point where repairing is pretty difficult. I mean, fortunately, we have some good couples therapies that can work, but I always say that we need to pay close attention early on so we can start to, like, take care of our relationship in a more preventative way, just the way we might go for um, prevention checkups to the doctor, or make sure we're getting our teeth cleaned before we, you know, they fall out of our mouth, something like that. We want to pay attention to our relationship so that we can be working on it, strengthening it, checking in on it all along, so it doesn't get to that sort of point of no return.
0: But once it's there, I mean, what what in a day-to-day very practical way can people begin to repair what might have gone wrong?
2: Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I've been studying and that I uh, work on a lot uh, is the idea that we can bring a set of skills to relationships that we can then uh, use broadly as a framework to help us think about how to approach our relationships uh, differently. So I call these skills insight, mutuality, and emotion regulation. And insight is the kind of skill that lets us really start to look and think carefully and reflect and try to understand our own behaviors and our partner's behaviors. Mutuality is another really important one. That's basically the idea that there's there's two people in this relationship and both people have needs, and we've got to pay attention to both people's needs. And then emotion regulation is about managing your feelings in response to the things that happen in relationships. And if people can Start to become insightful and take their partner's perspective as well as their own and start to deal with some of their intense feelings that they may have about what's going on in their relationship. These are the kinds of skills that I think can uh, really help people manage um, in good times and in bad times.
0: And so how do you, but how do you do them? How do you, on a very practical day-to-day level, what is it that you do differently than you're doing now to apply those skills?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think you need to do is you need to sort of stop and observe what's going on. We act very automatically in our lives in general and in our relationships. So we get into patterns where it's just, you know, something happens and the pattern just starts and we just go with it and um, without stopping to think like, wait a minute, what's happening here? What's, what's my part in this? What am I doing? What's my partner's uh, part in this? Are we getting what we want out of this interaction? Can we step back and think about, is there a different way to do this? So I think that's really important, and that's kind of the insight piece of things. Because ultimately what we want people to be able to do is instead of being um, blaming of each other and sort of stuck on opposite sides of of problems, we want to help them to be able to say, all right, you know what, we're in this together. Let's step away from this. Let's actually look at the problem as something outside of us that we have to deal with as a couple rather than blaming each other for everything that's going on. And these things are really hard to do. Sometimes couples can't do them without, you know, help from a therapist. Um, But if they start to think more about, like, you know, hang on, it doesn't have to go this way. How can I stop? How can I think about this differently? How can I see my partner's side? That might be a good in helping yeah. helping them change things.
0: Well, and how hard is that to say, if you've been blaming your partner for everything that's gone wrong, it's kind of hard to say, well, let me look at it from your side. Oh, I see. Oh. oh.
2: Super hard. Yeah. yeah. That's why I think we need to teach people these skills before, you know, early on so that they understand the idea and they can go into relationships thinking about being, you know, skillful in these ways and create relationships based on that, rather than just having to try to implement them when it's really difficult to.
0: You use the phrase, and I've heard this very often in discussions about relationships, about getting your needs met. And I wonder if people even know what that means, what their needs are, what it means to meet the needs of someone else. It's a, it's a very catchy phrase that gets used a lot that I think doesn't mean anything to almost anybody.
2: I agree with you because people have um, very different ideas about what that might mean, and oftentimes they don't even know what their own needs are. So one of the things that um, I like to try and help people do is really try to figure that out. And so um, in my work, I've come up with Uh, a list of some core needs that I like to try and teach people about them. Not that they'll be right for everybody or everybody will um, want every one of those needs met in their relationship, but at least if they start with some core ones like security and safety is a really core need. If you're in a relationship where you don't feel safe physically or emotionally, that's a real problem, you know. Um, being authentic is an important need in, in mo- most relationships, particularly, like, long-term committed ones. Being able to, like, really show yourself to that other person and have them do the same. So I like to get people, I like to try and teach people what some of these core needs are so they can start to say, hey, is that, is that happening in my relationship? Do I want that? Rather than just leaving it up to them, with this idea of whatever their needs happen to be.
0: You also use the term authentic, to be authentic in your relationship. And I think that's another thing people struggle with because, I mean, I'm being authentic with you right now, but this isn't how I am w- with my kids. I'm being authentic with them, but it's very different than how I talk to other people. So, what does it mean to be authentic?
2: could mean to be vulnerable with somebody, to be able to show who you really are uh, deep inside. And we know from uh, couples therapy that the ability for uh, partners to really show what they're feeling in a vulnerable kind of way, what that does is it lets the other person understand them in a way that reduces blame. If, you know, if I see, you know, my partner is just being a jerk because of how they're behaving, but then they reveal something vulnerable about how, you know, it's actually that they're really afraid and they're afraid because of some, you know, early experience they might have had in their family where they felt abandoned. I'm going to feel much more um, empathic right i'm going to that's that, that's going to increase mutuality that's going to make me think wow you know this person isn't a jerk they they're actually struggling and so i'm going to come come to the situation in a much more open way and a much less angry way so i think that's one of the ways that being authentic can be really important in relationships
0: what about when it's a couple that things have been kind of withering on the vine for so long that there really isn't a whole lot of motivation to fix anything, because uh, it's going to take some effort, and, and you know, the, the, the thinking is, well, you know, we've tried this before, it's never worked, and, you know, so this is, it is what it is, and it sucks, and that's just it.
2: Well, if couples can't or don't want to change, then we can work with them on acceptance. And oftentimes that's uh, a very uh, real situation that people say you know like you said this is it and if that's the case then the question would be well can you accept this can you live with this without you know wishing that it would change magically somehow or secretly hoping that one day you know you'll wake up and your partner will be a different person right that's not acceptance at all that's sort of a you know fantasies about what could be but true acceptance is about saying you know what this is what I got, this is who this person is, this is who I am, and we are going to agree that we're, we're just going to go with this. And, you know, for some couples, maybe couples that have been together a long time or who are financially uh, dependent on each other or, you know, have children, maybe that's a decision they want to make, but they need to make it consciously and realistically without living in some fantasy about how it might actually be different.
0: In your work, if you had to, and this probably isn't really a fair question, but if you had to summarize why relationships go wrong, what path that it, they go down, where they turn off the main path and head down to trouble, where is it, when is it, what is it, if it is?
2: Yeah, that is a very tough question because there's not one answer about that. Things can go wrong at lots of steps along the way, but the, mo- the more important thing is to really uh, prevent things from going wrong as soon as we can. So to be paying attention early on to little indicators of when you start to get angry at something and you just, you know, decide, oh, I don't even want to talk about that, or when, you know, a partner does something and, and you know, you have a fight about it, and then you just don't follow up and talk it through. So being proactive, really trying to resolve things before they go so far down the road that it's really hard to return from it is pro- is really very important.
0: Don't you wonder sometimes... So many relationships, you know, we hear about half of marriages end in divorce. So many relationships have so many problems. <laughs> is, it, is it really, it, it, why do we keep doing this? Why, why, is, why, why, do, why don't people say, you know, and I guess a lot more people are saying, maybe that's not for me. Maybe I don't want to be married to one person for the rest of my life
2: a lot more people are making that choice we have so many choices about what kinds of relationships or non-relationships we can have these days for the very reason that you're talking about but the fact remains that for most people we crave and we need connection with someone else social relationships are uh, such a key part of the fabric of our society and our lives, and they really help us and sustain us. So we need them. But I do think we've put so much emphasis on, you know, one type of relationship and how it should be the end all and be all and give us everything in our lives that we could possibly need or want. And I think that's unrealistic. I think that if we thought about relationships in a broader way and really recognize what different kinds of relationships could give us. It would actually take the pressure off, you know, our romantic relationships and our romantic partners to have to be everything for us.
0: Well, I don't think there's a person in the world who's ever been in a relationship who hasn't struggled with managing it and making it happy and getting it to go right for everybody. So it's good to get it's good to get your insight into this. Joanne Davila has been my guest. She is a professor at Stony Brook University. She's author of the book, The Thinking Girl's Guide to the Right Guy, and she has a great TED Talk on the skills for healthy romantic relationships. There is a link to her book and to the TED Talk in the show notes for this episode. Did you know that you have millions of other passengers in your car you didn't invite? Bacteria. According to research by microbiologists from Aston University in Birmingham, England, the steering wheel, gear shift, and dashboard are crawling with germs. And if you have kids, imagine all the germs crawling around the seats and other surfaces. So when you wash your car, make sure to clean all the surfaces where germs could be lurking. And if you tend to keep your windows closed to keep the elements out, don't forget to let some new air in from time to time. And in between cleanings, you might want to give your interior a once-over with a disinfectant spray or at least wipe down the steering wheel, gear shift, and dash. And that is something you should know. As a listener to Something You Should Know, one of the best things you can do to help us continue to grow our audience and keep putting out episodes is to tell someone, just one or two people that you know, that would like this podcast and let them give a listen.